Morning. Happy Lord's Day, everyone. How many of you like weddings? Weddings? You like attending or uh, being part of weddings? Yeah, or, or eating at weddings? <laughs> so uh, I'm sure some of you have, have had uh, multiple experiences of weddings already or different uh, uh, roles in weddings. Uh, I think I've uh, experienced the full spectrum <laughs> of uh, uh, being part of a wedding. I've been a, a ring bearer when I was a child, a Bible bearer, part of the entourage. I've been a wedding singer uh, of uh, Pan and uh, Jess's uh, wedding. Uh, very memorable. <laughs> you ask them why. <laughs> um, what else? Uh, I've been a, a, an, a, like a, a, an assistant to, to the, the, the organizers. I think the only, uh, only thing that I haven't had experience is be a gate crasher in a wedding. Uh, so let me know <laughs> if there's a wedding nearby. <laughs> I'll just uh, check off that box. <laughs> uh, but one thing that I'm recently uh, experiencing is to be uh, an officiant of a wedding. Uh, I officiated last year, see Ati Malu and Alvin's wedding. It was a simple, lovely, very lovely wedding. Uh, and I look forward to, to many more weddings that I get to officiate, especially here. Um, I've been a ninong na rin pala, ninong uh, of uh, uh, D and uh, Win's uh, wedding. So really, I, I, I get to see different kinds of weddings. Um, but one thing, like I said, is something that I've been doing recently is to officiate uh, weddings. I've been doing that for, uh, I think, about seven years already. And in weddings that I get to officiate, I remind the couple and everyone present that what's taking place is not merely a celebration, although it is a celebration, it should be a celebration. It's not just a contract signing or a civic contract. Uh, I tell the couple and everyone very clearly that this is a covenant. Covenant. A covenant between two parties very important, one is male, one is female. In the presence of God and the witnesses, in a public demonstration of their union together. So obviously, there will be different kinds and different stories in a wedding, but you will see a common thing. Let me just mention four common things in a wedding. There will always be a proclamation of the union of their union together that they must proclaim uh, that they are being united uh, there must be a response right the the bride and groom must say i do there must be a covenant signing sealed in a wedding ring and signing of the marriage contract and there must be a uh, consummation of the wedding, uh, we, the ceremony is ended with a kiss. You may now kiss the bride and it, it seals the whole ceremony uh, there. Um, and I'm, uh, that will make sense as we talk about our, our sermon today. And today we will deal with that word, covenant, covenant, and, that, uh, and how that is powerfully demonstrated 
in the text that was read to us uh, earlier. And we have been going through uh, the series in Genesis, so starting Genesis 12. Uh, and this moves forward, this, this moves the, uh, the story forward. But if you look at the text, if you read in your liturgy, you know, from a casual reading, you know, the, 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 the text does not really jump off the page, so to speak. It's not as action-packed as last week, where there's a, a battle. Uh, there are kings. It does not seem much. It's just a bunch of pronouncement from God and some dead animals and smoking pot and, and flaming torch. What's, what's all that about? It doesn't seem like much. But, you know, there are two pastors that I greatly respect. Uh, I'll mention them, R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller. Both of them are, have gone to be with the Lord already. Uh, they have expressed publicly how they gravitate towards this chapter. Very surprisingly, they gravitate uh, towards this chapter. In fact, uh, see, R.C. Sproul, uh, he's a, a pastor, uh, author, professor, theologian, uh, read, uh, uh, wrote a lot of books. Um, when he was asked about his life verse, are you familiar with that you know, phrase? What's your life verse? Yeah. So he, when, he, when he's asked about that, he says, what do you mean life verse? Do I, do I have to parang single out uh, just a Bible passage and like, put a lot of meaning into that? So very... Um, you know, uh, like happily, he would, uh, even though he finds that in, in, in a sort of absurd way, he will say, uh, sure, I have a life verse. It's Genesis fifteen seventeen, our text. And if you look at our liturgy and you read Genesis fifteen seventeen, you'd be surprised that one would pick that as their life verse. Diba? Would you consider that to be your life verse? It's not, it's not John 3.16. It's not 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's not 1 John 1.9. It's a description of a fire passing through dead animals. What is going on here? But when you look at it, it does not seem much. But when R.C. Sproul talks about this verse, he's not kidding when he referred to this verse as one of the most impactful verses in his life. And I hope, I hope we get to see what R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller sees in this passage. That when, we, when they look at this passage, they're... they're they're drawn to it. And I hope I get to share with you and I hope it, I, I get to you know, open our eyes to see what they see you know, by, by the power of the Spirit. And I hope it stirs our hearts towards the Lord. And as believers, we get to see and appreciate this passage telling us that we can rejoice that we live under the gracious covenant of the Lord. So let me break this sermon down into four parts, okay? Taking, uh, talking about God's covenant, let's talk about four things. Number one, uh, the covenant proclamation. 
So as we look at this, pay attention to who is making the proclamation and what is being proclaimed. Who is making the proclamation and what is being proclaimed. Number two, covenant response. How Abram responded to that proclamation. And three, uh, covenant ceremony. How this covenant was ratified or signed. And number four, the covenant fulfillment. How this covenant is sealed with a kiss, so to speak. How is this consummated uh, in, in its uh, entirety? So you will see the first three of this uh, outline. You will see that explicitly in our passage. You will see it clearly here. But the last point, although it is not explicit in our, in, in our text, our passage actually points to it as we look at the big uh, picture story uh, of the Bible. All right? So covenant proclamation, covenant response, covenant ceremony, and covenant fulfillment. fulfillment. Let's look at them one by one. Covenant proclamation. So you know, as we have been going through Genesis uh, 12 onwards, this is not the first time that God made a promise to Abram, right? This is not the first time. And this is not even the last time that God will make a promise specifically to Abram. We saw that in Genesis 12. We studied that a few weeks ago. If you want to uh, listen to that, there's a podcast available for that. And we will see that again in Genesis 17, which is coming up in this sermon series very soon. So you have Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, God uh, delivering a promise to Abraham, and then this Genesis 15, another promise. We need to understand that they are not three separate promises. They are one covenant, one covenant promise, expressed and demonstrated in different ways. All right? That's why this is just one whole thing expressed in different stages in different ways. Just think about it as one plant. Kung meron kang halaman, uh, tapos nag-iiba na yung stages ng plant na yon, it's not a different plant, right? It's the same plant in a different season. So that's what we're looking at. Second, we've, we've seen the promise of God in, in Genesis 12. Notice what's different here. Notice that there's a dialogue this time between God and Abraham. That this was not present in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, there's no dialogue from Abraham. There was no response in, in a way of communication or dialogue. But this dialogue, interestingly, much of what Abraham says is a question. Question. And I would go as far as saying, it sounds like a complaint. Do you, do you see that? It, it sounds like a complaint. Let me, let me read again the passage uh, for us. Verse 1, after the, uh, these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be great. But, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And God responds, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able. So, so shall your offspring be. Now, I hope we understand that Abram is not being disrespectful here. Kasi baka maisip natin, hala, si Abram sumasagot na. <laughs> sumasagot na. He's not being disrespectful here. I would say that this is a valid question. This is a valid question. Keep in mind, at this point, Abram is probably seeing a glimpse of what God promised to him. His property is expanding now. His household is expanding. His territory in Canaan is being established. He just won a battle and he, you know, he has the respect of other kings surrounding him. So he sees a glimpse already of that promise. He sees, he sees the blessing of, uh, he sees the promise of blessing and protection. But there's one important promise that has no sign of getting fulfilled anytime soon. What's that? Having an offspring. And time is ticking. Timing's running out. If we were in Abram's position, we probably have asked the same things. And one would think God's response would be, how dare you? But that's not what God did, right? God does not ignore Abram's question. Instead, God graciously dialogues with him. And while Abram is doing the questioning, God is doing the proclaiming. In this dialogue, Abram is questioning, God is proclaiming. And I would put this covenant proclamation here in this pattern. And I hope you'll see this. The pattern goes like this. I am, I will, you shall. Right? I am, I will, you shall. Verse 7 says, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, uh, out from the Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. I am your shield. I will give this land for you to possess. You shall have an offspring. He will be your heir. You sh you, your offspring shall be many. You shall go to your father in peace. I am, I will, you shall. You know, we don't immediately see that because we're not, we're not very familiar with ancient Near East tradition and culture and background. But what God is proclaiming here, what God is saying here, he is following a pattern of covenant proclamation that Abram is familiar with. All right? What God is doing here is just following a covenant proclamation pattern that is familiar to that period. Okay? In the ancient Near East, when a king or a conqueror 
would commit to an agreement with another king, sometimes a lesser king, he will follow this pattern. He will introduce himself, I am king so-and-so, and I have conquered you. And he will say he, what he will do because you now is my, part of my ter you, you are now part of my territory. This is what I will do to you. And you shall get something out of this relationship. That's a covenant pattern that they are very familiar with. You know, we see this, you know, a resemblance of this uh, covenant proclamation when we make an oath. We see this even in our time. You know, when you, when you, when you make an oath, when you write a, a, a testimony or a, a, an affidavit, you, you, you say, I, Abit Almansa, of legal age, living in Quezon City, of sound mind, do solemnly swear, diba? blank. So we do that. So what's, what's, what God is doing here is God is proclaiming a covenant in a way that Abraham would understand. Abraham would understand. He doesn't have to do that. He's God. But he would proclaim something in ways that Abraham would get it. And also the key thing here is that everything hap that will happen and everything that's happening to Abraham, yung you shall, is predicated on who God is and what he will do. Let me repeat that. Everything that happens in Abraham's life and everything that will happen is predicated on who God is and what he will do. And here's a critical verse in this proclamation. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. What's so important with that, Pastor? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. It does not say Abraham made the covenant with God. Do you see the difference? The Lord made the covenant with Abraham. You know, when I was, I think, first year high school, uh, I, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, so I have the Christian virtues, Christian practice, and uh, first year high school, sa, sa PCU ako, nag-aaral, Philippine Christian University. So I was on my way home, on a jeep. Uh, at that moment, parang there's a, like a moment of clarity in my life. And I quietly prayed, Lord, I'm making a deal with you. God, let's make a deal. Here's my promise to you, God. I will take my Christian walk seriously from now on. That's my deal with you, Lord. Kudos, right? <laughs> Amazing. And boy, did I break that promise over and over again. You know why? 
because I'm the one initiating the promise, so to speak, and I'm bound to break it. But Abram did not enter into a covenant with God. It was God who made a covenant commitment to Abram. That's a big difference. Here's what that means for you and me. If you look at this proclamation, how God patterns the, the, the declaration, how he deals uh, with Abraham in a dialogue, you will see that there is no logical reason for a righteous, holy God to go down to the level of Abraham and initiate a, con uh, a commitment with him. There's no logical reason. Remember that God was not lonely or was just looking for some form of affirmation or validation for someone he created so that he, he entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham. He was not lonely. He was not seeking validation or affirmation. Friends, this covenant is not between two equal parties. Someone is obviously infinite, infinitely higher than the other. And yet, it is not Abram doing the reaching. God is doing the condescending. We sang that earlier. That's, a prop, that's the term that is appropriate here. It has a negative connotation in our culture, but it is God who's condescending into the level of Abraham so that Abraham would understand this relationship. He's condescending. He is bringing himself down to Abraham. You know what that means? This makes this de declaration a gracious covenant. Friends, the reason you and I enjoy a covenant relationship with a just holy, righteous God, the one whose presence could bring us dread and darkness, you know, to sinners like you and me, it's because he graciously chose to enter into a covenant relationship with us. Knowing full well that that little boy in a Jeep first year high school will break his promise. Knowing full well that you will break your promise over and over again, knowing full well that we do not bring anything on the table. God commits himself to us anyway. And because of that, the fitting response to this grace is faith. Faith. That brings us to our second point. This is how Abram responds to this gracious proclamation, verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. You know, this verse has been quoted many times in the New Testament. Multiple times in Romans, in Galatians, and last year we had the Galatians series, so this was quoted there. And even in uh, the letter of James, this this you know this passage is very important 
even to New Testament believers for us to understand, and I'm going to use a, like a big theological word that I, I hope all of us will understand. This is quoted many times in the New Testament to uh, emphasize justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone apart from works. And this is Abram's only part in the covenant. Think about that. That's his part, to receive it and to believe the Lord. But even then, the Lord takes it higher by crediting unto Abram righteousness. When it says in your, in your liturgy, in your Bible, he counted it to him as righteousness, it means adding something that was not there before. Okay? Adding something that's not there before. It's like, you know, you open a bank account, there's a minimum deposit, right? There's a minimum deposit, magano ba? 5,000? 1,000? Let's say a bank allows you to open a, uh, an account with no minimum deposit, initial deposit, zero. And as soon as you open the bank account, the bank credits you 100,000 automatically. That's what it means to count it to him, to credit it to him as righteousness. Simply means it's imputed righteousness. It's not righteousness that is inherent in Abraham. That's why he believed. It was righteousness that was given to him because it was not there to begin with. All right? You know, and, and I, you know, we'll breeze through this because I think you're all, you're all great and awesome and you understand this very well. But, you know, this is important because we might think that God is entering into a covenant relationship with Abraham because Abraham was a righteous person. From time to time, we think like that. The Lord is happy to deal with me because I'm a righteous person. The Lord is happy to bless me because, you know, I, I am present every Sunday. The Lord is happy with me because I completed a, a full year of reading the Bible. We think that God is into a relationship with us because we're righteous to begin with. Keep in mind, God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and imputed into him righteousness. You know, John Calvin, a pastor and theologian from Geneva, refutes that idea that Abraham was a righteous person to begin with. And let me quote in, in one of his commentaries. And this is a strong word, by the way. Those who twist this passage and interpret, interpret it as a description of righteousness, as if it said that Abraham was a righteous and upright man, they're talking nonsense. John Calvin's words. Here's what, he, here's what this passage means, according to Calvin. 
Abraham was justified or called righteous because relying on the, on the fatherly kindness of God, he had confidence in God's goodness alone and not in himself and his merits. You know, here's the bottom line. The gift of righteousness is received by faith. The gift of righteousness is received by faith and not earned by works. We don't earn it by works. You know, this is a critical point that converted a German monk, Martin Luther. When this enlightened his life, he's con he got converted. That the just shall live by faith. Friends, we don't earn God's approval by working hard to attain righteousness. It is a gracious gift, this righteousness, that we receive as we put our trust in the Lord. You know, your righteousness, my righteousness, hinges on the nature of the one we are putting our faith into. It does not hinge on the quality of your faith because if your righteousness hinges on the quality of your faith, your righteousness will be flimsy, unreliable, and even revocable. And if we stop at, at verse 6, you know, Abraham believed God and credited to him as righteousness, we might think, we might think that Abraham had this perfect faith that's why it was counted to him as righteousness. Therefore, you know, ang, ang message is, you know, look at Abraham. He exercised perfect faith. Therefore, do the same thing. Abraham exercised perfect faith and do, so strive to have that perfect faith. You know, if we stop at verse 6, that's true. <laughs> but the text does not stop there. Look at the next statement, which will disprove that thinking. Verse, let me read verse 7 and 8. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord, again the proclamation, that brought you out from the Ur of Chaldeans, and I will give you this land to possess. Abram responded like this, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Hold on a second. Hold on. Just a while ago, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How come he seems to be doubting now? It's as if, if I'm going to paraphrase, Lord, I believe you. I believe you. But how can I know for sure? I believe you. I trust in you. But could you give me something to believe in? Does that sound familiar to you? Friends, do you hear yourself saying those words silently sometimes? Lord, I believe you, but I'm just not sure how. 
Lord, I trust in you, but, you know, this problem is just overwhelming. Lord, I believe that you built this church, but I just don't know how this will be established. Lord, I know and I believe that you brought this family into my life, but I just don't know how to sustain it. That sounds familiar, don't you think? You know, our, even our practice of faith is tainted by sin. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Our prayer just a while ago. Our practice of faith is tainted by sin. It is often shaky, it's flimsy, it's unreliable, it's small as a mustard seed. But God receives it anyway. God receives your flimsy, shaky, unreliable, small faith. He receives it not because your offer of faith is good, he receives it because he is good. And God graciously helps Abraham with his unbelief with this. Like, Lord, can you give me some evidence that this will really happen? If God wants it, he would just strike down Abraham right there. But God is just so gracious in demonstrating his covenant, that he allows Abraham to experience it himself. He does this by demonstrating a covenant ceremony. And I hope we get to appreciate what R.C. Sproul appreciates in this particular part of the passage. This is our third point, the covenant ceremony. God responds to Abraham, uh, Abraham's question, Lord, can you give me some evidence that you will actually really give this land for me to possess? And God responds like this. Okay, bring me a heifer, a goat, ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. What's going on here? Instead of answering the question, God gives Abram a list of animals. Punta ka sa grocery, kunin mo mga to. In, look at what happened next, verse 10. Abram brought him all this, all these, cut him in half, and laid each half over against the other, did not cut the birds in half, and when there were vultures around, he was shooing them away. Abram drove them away. Look at that text again. God did not instruct Abram to cut the animals in half, right? God did just ask him to bring some animals. Abram did not, uh, God did not instruct Abram to cut them in half. Hindi niya in-instruct si Abram to lay them like opposite each other. God did not say that. But it seems like he knows what God wants him to do. 
when, a- when God gave the instruction to bring these animals, in Abram's mind, he knows what's happening. He knows what's happening. We don't know it again because we are not in that culture, but he knows what God is about to do. Because this is how you sign an agreement during that period in that context. This is their marriage contract. This is their sandugo. This is their ring ceremony in a wedding. It's literally a bloody covenant. It's an agreement that's sealed in blood. Let me explain what's happening here. So, again, God followed through the covenant proclamation, right? Yung sinasabi niya, yung kung siya, ano yung gagawin niya, at ano yung response nung, nung tao. But not only that, he follows through a, like a, 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 a seal of agreement. This is exactly what you will do. You know, they will proclaim their names and their pledge. They will bring animals, cut them in half. Then as the cut animals are laid on each side, the contracting parties, the two parties, will walk along the cut animals. Dadaan sila dun sa cut animals. Sometimes yung ruler, the, the one, the conquering king, will uh, pass through the animals first, and then yung lesser king will pass after him. Or sometimes, sabay sila. If it's an equal party, sabay sila. So bride and groom, parang ganun. So sa wedding ceremonies natin, nauna yung groom, tapos last yung bride. Parang ganun yung nangyayari dito. Essentially, when they walk through the cut animals, what they're saying, after we made all these pro- proclamation, this is my commitment to you. May I bring upon myself the curse similar to these animals if I break the covenant. Kaya may cut animals. Essentially, they're saying, if I break my covenant, may I be like this animal. May I be cut in half. I'm, ch- I'm, I'm telling you how true am I with my promise that if I break it, may I be like them. So when Abram heard that instruction from God, what he's waiting for is for God to walk through the cut animals and he will also walk through them. That's the point. That's why he's waiting the, the whole time. That's why tinataboy niya yung mga uh, birds of, of prey. And we don't know how that will happen and that, how that will look like, but he's been waiting there. And you know what happened next is even more mind-boggling. More mind-boggling. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Wow, that's a lot. 
And, and you see, as we read this, because we know Exodus already, this is a, pro a prophetic proclamation of what will happen to Abram's offspring 400 years. Of what will happen in Egypt. And I know this deserves to be looked at in depth, but for the sake of, you know, keeping this sermon less than one hour, we will just, you know, breeze through this and we will pause this. But suffice it to say that God is showing Abraham that this covenant is much bigger than his own lifetime. It's much bigger than his land. It's not all rainbows and butterflies because there's a going to be uh, 400 years of slavery. So let's put that aside for the moment because I want to focus on what happened to Abram. Again, looking back, verse 12. What happened? A dreadful, great darkness fell upon him. You know, the gravity of that language, hindi lang dreadful, great pa. It, it suggests that this is a really a big deal. What's happening to Abram is a big deal. This is both external and internal darkness. It was not just dark because it's nighttime. The darkness is happening outside and inside. Darkness is surrounding him and there's an, uh, even a darkness of the soul. And if you've encountered that phrase, a dark night of the soul. Friends, have you felt that before? A darkness so deep, so great that you feel like there's no way out of it. Some call that depression. No, a, a, a priest called that the dark night of the soul. Have you felt that before? I sure have. And some people experience this because, you know, they feel an absence of a solution. Like there's no way out of this darkness. And some people experience this because they feel like even God is absent. But you know what? Abram's experience is very different. He experienced a dreadful darkness, not because God is absent. He experienced a dreadful darkness because God is present. He felt dread and darkness because, because God is present as a visual manifestation. You will see here as a smoking fire and a flaming torch. God is there. And he felt the unbearable weight of his sin in front of the glory of God. He felt the darkness and the dread because the intensity of his sin is so exposed in the presence of a holy God. 
You know, when we try to grasp the full weight of God's glory, His holiness, you know, we are confronted more and more by our own sinfulness. When we come to experience and, and, and realize and recognize that God is so holy, it brings us to a dread calling ourselves so bad that we would rather, that we would rather die. You know, and the opposite of that, when we minimize sin and we say, okay lang yan, loving naman si Lord eh. Then we have taken for granted the full weight of God's holiness. That's what Abraham is experiencing here. The, the dread and the darkness that he is experiencing is not because of the absence of God, it's because the presence of a holy God in, in, around him. But God is not there to simply put dreadful darkness in Abram. He is there to show Abram the gospel. And here is R.C. Sproul's life verse. Genesis 15, 17. And this is easy to remember because if you like Reformed theology, 1517 is supposedly the year of the Reformation. So Genesis 15, 17. Let me read. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Something, or should I say, someone passed through the cut pieces. If this is a manifestation of a holy God, that means God passed through the cut animals. The covenant was signed, so to speak, because a king passed through it. And you know what else? Abram did not. He did not pass through the cut animals. Only God did. You know the message of that? God is saying, Abram, may I be, if I don't fulfill my promise, may I be like these cut animals. I'm telling you that I am faithful to my word, that may a curse be upon me if I don't fulfill my promise. And I am taking the curse of this covenant even if you break the promise. I am taking the curse of the covenant for the both of us. I am passing through the cut animals for the both of us. You know, that makes the covenant unbreakable. Unbreakable. Friends, God completed the covenant ceremony on Abraham's behalf. And that's a big commitment from God to say 
that I am true to my word, that may I, may I be like these animals if I break it? Of course, we know that that will not happen. But he also said, may I be like these animals if you break it? And guess what? Abram broke it. So God must take the curse of the covenant, right? Where do we see that? We see that on the cross. We see that on the cross. At the cross, Christ, God the Son, took upon the curse because Abraham and his offspring, as we, will, we shall see, they failed to follow through the conditions of this covenant. God obviously was faithful to his word. Abraham and his offspring obviously will fail to follow through this covenant. But God took upon him the curse of the covenant. The dreadful darkness of the whole world because of sin was completely laid on Christ. The darkness of the whole world, anytime, anywhere, all at once, all upon him on the cross because that was the curse of this covenant promise. Friends, that's a covenant fulfillment. That's how God seals this covenant with a kiss, so to speak. He consummates this covenant with Christ on the cross. Friends, do you know, do you want to know if God is true to his covenant commitment? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. And as you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the one whose body was cut, was broken for us. God credits his righteousness, the righteousness of his son, on us. You know, let me end with that story on the cross. And, you know, recently this was made popular also by Alistair Begg, uh, ironically. But, you know, I, sometimes the question comes up, uh, about the, the thief on the cross, and some people would ask, uh, was really the thief on the cross who, who uh, turned uh, towards Jesus, was he really saved? Was he really saved? Because he turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you enter paradise. And Jesus responded, surely you will be at, surely, surely uh, today you will be with me in paradise. And people might you know, say, is he really uh, saved? My answer is yes. My answer is yes. Is he really saved because he practiced righteousness after he was crucified, that thief? Apparently not because you know what will happen after he was crucified? He will die. There's no reason anymore, there's no way anymore for him to go to church. Or was he justified because his words were sincere? Baka sabihin natin, ah, this, this thief on the cross, he was justified, he's in heaven because his words were sincere. He said, Lord, remember me 
when you enter your kingdom. Baka he was so sincere, that's why he's in heaven. I cannot judge anyone's sincerity every time they say something. So I cannot guarantee that he is in heaven merely because he was sincere with his statement. You know why I believe he is in heaven? Because Jesus says so. Surely today you will be with me in paradise. Trust the God who made a covenant commitment and fulfilled it on our behalf. Trust his word. Believe it. And that as you place your trust in him, receive that gift of righteousness. Let's pray. Gracious God, what a joy to be undeserving recipients of your covenant promise. Lord, we do not deserve it. We do not even earn it. But we receive it anyway. Thank you that you have imputed in us the righteousness that is not in us to begin with, the righteousness of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we recognize that we have been made righteous because you fulfilled the covenant on our behalf, may we respond in faith that we will live by faith, that we will rejoice and be thankful for the gift that you have given us. May we continue to rejoice and praise you as a gracious covenant-keeping God. In Christ's name, amen.